Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 117. We've got a loaded weekend. Are we optimistic about anything? I don't know. Maybe we'll talk ourselves into it during the course of this 40-minute podcast. Packers and Chargers at Lambeau Field on Sunday. It is only the 13th time they've met. The Packers are 10-2 against the Chargers in their history. They're wearing the throwbacks from 1950-53 on Sunday. They're three-point dogs. Chargers are a deceiving 4-5, and five, I feel like. I am frightened of their running game against the Packer rush defense. We'll break all that down. I am going to have a Packer memory. This one will be a bit more brief. They're all a lot more fun when we can dig into the 90s and their divisional games. This one is not a matchup we see a lot. But I will play you a clip from a 2015 matchup between these two teams. Eight years ago, as the Packers went to 6-0, and heading into a bye week that year. Badgers in Nebraska, I don't know in what world the Badgers are being favored against anybody at this point, but they are favored by five and a half points. Primetime national TV against Nebraska. A couple of five and five teams squaring off. You can get tickets right now on StubHub for a gentleman's three bucks for a saw buck for a Buffalo nickel to get into that game on Saturday night. The Bucks are back on the floor. We've all been salivating for pool play game number two in the in-season tournament. We get that tonight. Nice game for them Wednesday in Toronto. No Giannis, but we'll break that game down, get you set for Friday night's matchup, as well as talk about the intro press conference for Pat Murphy and Ricky Weeks. Ricky Weeks went and got me fired up. It's been a rough month and a half for Brewer fans. He kind of brought me back to life. We'll talk about that, play you an audio clip from him. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. In time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin record-breaking run! Morgan, a smash up the middle, face hit the center! Here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win! Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's hard! And there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in. Backed away, it's stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul. What a pinnacle foul, throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there. And they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, should we start there? The intro press conferences for Pat Murphy as the new brewer manager, as predicted here, and probably a million other podcasts and Twitter pages, but you're listening to this one. So as predicted here many weeks ago, Pat Murphy, the new brewer manager, and they do dive into the alumni to get a bench coach, which is not actually a bench coach. They are naming him the associate manager, and they were very specific about naming him associate manager. He is assistant manager, not assistant to the regional manager. Deal with and that's why you have an assistant regional manager. Yes, it is. Assistant to the regional manager. Same thing. <laughs> so I thought that was an intriguing part of the entire press conference too because normally you just hear of a bench coach pat murphy was craig council's bench coach it seemed like the hierarchy and matt arnold and pat murphy were very much going out of their way on thursday in saying the actual title for ricky weeks is associate manager they kept on bringing that up associate manager not bench coach associate manager they want to give him more responsibility and give him a greater title which to me means 
he's the future manager. I guess we'll see how it plays out. As we talked about on this podcast weeks ago, and I've talked about with a bunch of buddies, for what the Brewers are about to enter into, which is at best a soft rebuild, might be a full rebuild. You feel like they've got enough outfield talent where this isn't going to be a full rebuild. I think we all have faith, hopefully, in Sal Freelich and Garrett Mitchell and hopefully Jackson Churio. I assume we are going to see him at some point in the middle of summer, number one or number two prospect in baseball. They've got some talent in the pipeline that is not far from being major league ready. Robert Gosser, the pitcher that they got back in the hater trade, he's their top pitching prospect along with Mizorowski. Those guys are knocking on the door. For those reasons, we hope this is not going to take too long. However, it does look like this is going to be a soft rebuild. There are rumors this morning, and we're going to find out. You may know by the time you listen to this podcast whether or not Brandon Woodruff is still a Milwaukee Brewer. Today is non-tender day for Brandon Woodruff, which means they either have to tender him a contract, non-tender him, which would make him a free agent instantly, or they need to find a way to trade him or extend him. We discussed that many weeks ago, too, when the injury news came out. One thing that they could do with Brandon Woodruff is offer him a backloaded two-year deal where he doesn't get a ton of the money in this first year as he is going to be rehabbing from that shoulder injury. It's a backload second year where he can make between, what, 10 and $12 million? And if he's healthy and he proves he's healthy, then after that, he has a chance to be a free agent at 30 years old or 31 years old, still fairly young given his position and the amount of innings that he has thrown. That may be enticing to Woodruff, who knows he's going through a full year of rehab. He'll get a full year with the Brewers to prove himself, and then he can hit the open market, and if he succeeds in 2025, maybe he will get that three- or four- or five-year deal at $100 million plus that we thought he would get maybe this offseason or next offseason. It's going to be interesting to see what they do with him today, though, and the rumors are that they are throwing him out in trade conversations I don't know. I would guess you are going to get for an injured Woodruff, you are going to get about 50 cents on the dollar in trade return. I'd much rather see them offer him one of those two-year backloaded deals. That's a conversation happening in real time as we speak right now. In fact, as I'm recording this, there may be a resolution already, but today is the day they need to decide on whether or not they're going to tender him a contract. It looks like they're likely to trade Corbin Burns. I would guess they're going to trade Willie Adamas. The only other path I could see here is that Mark Adnazio is going to take the scorned lover path, and he's going to get in the gym, and he's going to get hot, and he's going to start putting pics on Instagram, <laughs> titillating pics, and he's going to try to get back at Craig Council, who did seem to blindside him by going not only to another team but to the Chicago Cubs. Perhaps he will lash out, and he will dip into his pocketbook, and they'll extend Burns, and they'll extend Adamus, and maybe they will take the 2011 path that we speculated about or hypothesized about many, many weeks ago. Maybe they will try to go all in. I doubt it, though. In all likelihood, they're trading Burns. They're trading Adamus. Maybe they are going to trade Woodruff today. And we are headed toward a at least soft rebuild. For that reason... I think the manager for the next two years is probably not a big deal. You don't want him to be incompetent, but we're not looking at a manager with a championship team like Adrian Griffin maybe is under the microscope right now for the Bucks, where you have a championship contending team and you're a first-year coach, and there's a lot of pressure there. They picked a guy who the team is familiar with, the players are familiar with, he has continuity, he has stability, he's been a baseball guy for his entire life. I had my buddy Pat texted after the press conference on Thursday and said, boy, Pat Murphy sure does look like a baseball guy. He does. He's got that permanent tan. He's got that permanent hat hair. He looks very uncomfortable in a press conference setting where he has to put on ca- not casual clothes. He looks like he's spent a couple of summers in Central America wandering around the Dominican League. But he's a guy with that pedigree. He's been in baseball his whole life. He has developed young talent his whole life. He's relatable even at whatever he is, 62, 63 years old, as some of these younger players. They like him. Clearly, they like him. 
if you give him two years or three years, that puts him in his mid to late 60s. Is he going to want to hang around much longer? If they're on the precipice maybe of something important or they are on the verge of being a division title contender or a championship contender, maybe he does. And maybe he proves in these next couple of years that he belongs longer than that. This, though, to me looks like a veteran baseball guy who's going to keep that seat for a couple of years and then is going to hand the baton off to the manager in waiting, who it seems like is Ricky Weeks with that associate manager title. Then Ricky Weeks got to talk at this press conference, and he dropped a hard F-bomb at the end of this. He was thanking everybody, thanking the Atnazios, thanking Matt Arnold and Pat Murphy and the Brewer community, and he said he's happy to be home, and then he said, let's bleep and go. There's a certain ball player that you want. There's a certain team that you want. There's a certain leadership that you want, and it's all right here, I think. And uh, to say that, I'm, I'm, I'm just ready to get started right now. So, again, I thank you. I thank you to the city of Milwaukee, Mark, Matt, Murph. Let's fucking go. I'm ready. I'm here for it. <laughs> he just won me over. As much as I think that these next two years could be bad years, 65 to 70 win years, Ricky won me over at the end of that with dropping the LFG. Let's bleep and go. Let's go, Ricky. Ricky's back. How old is Ricky Weeks? I don't even know. Hold on. Let me Google this. He had some solid years, all-star years. The defense at second base sometimes left a little to be desired, and he was a bit of a free swinger. Ricky Weeks' age. He's 41 years old. I cannot believe we are now in an era where the guys in that era, Ryan Braun turns 40 today. Happy birthday, Brawny, the Hebrew Hammer. I can't believe we are living in an era now where all those guys, Corey Hart and JJ and Prince and all the offensive weapons they had from 05 until, what, 2011 or 2012, somewhere in there, that those guys are all coaches now. They're all coaching and rising the ranks. Although I hadn't heard much about Ricky and the Brewer organization until the end of the year that he had become a more integral part. I think they welcomed him back at some point just to throw out a first pitch or maybe get inducted into the Wall of Honor. And at that point, the broadcast on Bally started to discuss how he has become a member of the team again, and he's helping with the front office a little bit and tutoring players and a part of the minor league system and the fall camp and spring camp. I didn't know that about Ricky. He has no actual managing experience, but he is going to learn from a career baseball guy. And just the way the whole setting went and how they phrased his title and where Pat Murphy is in his career, it just feels to me like Pat Murphy, seat holder's probably too much of a, a phrase that downplays what Pat Murphy is. But I think it's going to be Pat for a year or two or maybe three years. And then it does just seem to me, based on everything and all the vibes I'm getting from yesterday, that Ricky Weeks is going to be the guy. Yeah, we're going to find out. We're going to find out what happens with Brandon Woodruff at some point. I think they have until EOB today to get something done there or potentially trade him. That could be the first major chip that falls. They did ask Matt Arnold about that, the Brewer Beat reporters, during the course of the press conference. What does this team look like competitively? And he basically... He just kind of walked around that landmine and said, we're going to be as competitive as we can be with what we have. It just makes sense for a small market team to take the cartridge out, blow the cartridge out like an old Super Nintendo cartridge or an NES cartridge, get out the Q-tip, put some Windex on it, clean that bad boy out, and get it set for maybe a year or two and see some of these young players come up this year. Those press conferences, though, were on Thursday, and they kind of got me fired up, Pat Murphy and Ricky Weeks on Thursday. All right, let's talk about the Packers. Before we get into the game or the Packer memory, there was some Packer kind of off-the-field Hall of Fame news. First of all, today, Brian Bulaga is officially going to retire a Green Bay Packer. In honor of that, I would be remiss in my efforts as the 17th-rated sports podcast in Sheboygan to not play you this Brian Bulaga, Iowa. Brian Bulaga, Iowa. Brian Bulaga, Iowa. Drink it in, 40 Iowa. seconds. Brian Bulaga, Iowa. 
Brian Belaga, Iowa. Brian Belaga, Iowa. Brian Belaga, Iowa. Brian Belaga, Iowa. Brian Belaga, Iowa. Brian Belaga, Iowa. Brian Belaga, Iowa. Brian Belaga, Iowa. Brian Belaga, Iowa. Just such a lack of passion in the way he delivered that every single time they were on national TV. Brian Belaga, Iowa. He's been doing some radio stuff, and he's good. I think 97.3, the game in Milwaukee, or maybe it's 94.5. I think whatever has Tausch and Wildia, and I'm pretty sure that's 94.5, the ESPN Milwaukee affiliate. They've had Belaga on filling in for Tausch when Tausch hasn't been able to be on the show. He's been on in addition to Tausch on some afternoons and mornings. He's good. He's pretty good on this, as dispassionate as he sounds in those deliveries of Brian Balaga, Iowa. He is very good at breaking down the game. He's become more and more of an analyst for regional coverage of the Packers in southeastern Wisconsin. Good to see him retire a Packer today. Packers also announced the next two players going into the Packer Hall of Fame. Another one from Iowa, and maybe a name that's forgotten a little bit in recent Packer history, Aaron Campman, Iowa. He was also an Iowa product. He is going in. What a fun player to watch. He was a two-time second-team All-Pro. I was diving into Campy's Wikipedia page. I call him Campy. On his Wikipedia page yesterday, just to kind of revisit his career. We all remember him as a solid producer who had two or three spectacular years in there. And then when they went to the 3-4 scheme and Dom Capers was hired, there just really wasn't a spot for him. Remember when they tried to use Campman as a linebacker in the 3-4 scheme? That must have been 2009. Was 09 the first year Capers was in Green Bay or was it 08? I think it was 09. And remember we ended up with Aaron Campman in coverage long before Preston Smith was in coverage against Devontae Adams, which we saw this year in Vegas. <laughs> Many years before that, we had Aaron Campman in coverage against wide receivers in the Dom Capers 3-4 defense. Aaron Campman walked so Preston Smith could run and both could get beat badly by players far superior athletically. That was a thing that happened. Remember, they hired Capers, and we knew the 3-4 scheme was changing. That must have been the 08 to 09 transition. We knew that he was a 3-4 defense guy, and the question all offseason was, well, what do you do with Aaron Campman? He was still a productive player at that point in his career, a guy who was getting double-digit or close to double-digit sacks every year. You didn't want to lose out on that, but it was clear he just didn't have a fit on that defense. I want to say it was one more year. Then he went somewhere Jacksonville maybe for a year, and that was it for his career. He uh, registered a 15-and-a-half sack season in 2006. That was one of the back-to-back years, 06 and 07. He was second-team All-Pro, not just a Pro Bowler, and he was a Pro Bowler those years too, but second-team All-Pro, a 15-and-a-half sack season for Aaron Kempman in 2006. Good to see him get in. And then Clay Matthews, an obvious Packer Hall of Famer, a first ballot Packer Hall of Famer. I don't know if there are any restrictions or what, how long players have to wait or do they have to be retired for a certain amount of time before they can go into the Packer Hall of Fame. If there are first ballot Packer Hall of Famers, Clay is it. Clay is probably a borderline pro football Hall of Famer. I don't know how hot that take is. That feels like maybe a lukewarm take. He's not going to get in because he wasn't healthy. If he's fully healthy for his entire career and he puts up career numbers or his career average numbers for a full 16-game schedule – he probably would be knocking on the door of being a Pro Football Hall of Famer. When you consider he was in the running for Defensive Player of the Year there for a couple of years, he was an integral part of a championship team, had one of the biggest plays in a Super Bowl, that popping the ball loose after Kevin Green told him it is time. 
Clay in his heyday, though, when he burst onto the scene in 2009 and 2010, when he was healthy and chasing down quarterbacks, the speed and the aggressiveness and the violence with which he chased down quarterbacks from 2009 to 2011. We discussed it in the week one recap after the Packers beat the Bears in week one. We had Lucas Van Ness chase down Justin Fields, and I said after that game, and we haven't seen much from Van Ness since, but in that moment, chasing down an athletic quarterback and a fast quarterback by like Justin Fields, the way Van Ness did, that reminded me of what we saw from Clay Matthews during that heyday run of 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012. Then the injury started to build up. He lost a step, and eventually he went to L.A., right, for a year or two put up massive numbers as a Packer. I believe he is the all-time sack leader. Is it the all-time sack leader, or is it still KB, KGB? I think he is the all-time sack, all-time Packer sack leader. Do some real-time Googling for you. Yeah, he is. After 10 years, 83 and a half sacks. He was a Pro Bowler six times, first-team All-Pro in 2010. Woodson won the Defensive Player of the Year award in 2009. Then remember we thought Clay won it in 2010 and then didn't go to someone else, Troy Palomalu, and then Clay got the last laugh in the Super Bowl that year. He put up some massive numbers early in his career, Clay Matthews. And then he also got bit late in his career by the different focus that the NFL put on hitting quarterbacks. Remember how many times Clay would get unnecessary roughness penalties or get ejected from games that would extend drives? where it didn't even look like he was helmet-to-helmet. He became kind of a victim of a change of the guard there in NFL rules and how you can hit a quarterback. He got so many flags for that at the end of his career for unnecessary roughness or a late hit or leading with your helmet, something like that. Clay Matthews, the all-time Packers sack leader, 83 and a half sacks in his illustrious career as he is set to go in, is it July? I believe it's July that Campman and Matthews will go in. Okay, Packers and Chargers this weekend at Lambeau Field. Let's do a Packer memory very quickly. There is not a lot of history between these two teams. I do remember this game, though. It was week six of the 2015 season. Remember, we are coming off of the season at that point that shall not be named and the game that shall not be named. Major disappointment, obviously, and that's an understatement. There isn't even a word invented yet for what level of disappointment the end of 2014 was. Then the next year, 2015, They came out as hot as anybody in the league in their first six weeks. They beat the Bears on the road. They beat Seattle in a revenge game. They beat Kansas City before Mahomes. They beat San Francisco on the road. They beat St. Louis at home. And then they beat this Charger team at home heading into a bye week. At that point, they were coming off of a year where most felt like, had it not been for 17 different blunders at the end of the game that shall not be named, They should have been in the Super Bowl that year and would have had a good chance to win that Super Bowl. It ends in sour fashion, but they desoured and sweetened. You got to desour and sweeten. They did that, and they bolt out in 2015 despite a lot of injuries with a 6-0 record. This was the sixth game in that six-game winning streak. Phillip Rivers was still the quarterback in San Diego. They were San Diego back in 2015, correct? And Aaron Rodgers had a good game that day. Keenan Allen was still going for the Chargers. Antonio Gates was still in San Diego. You know what a big day that day? James Starks. I forgot after the Super Bowl that they kept with Starks and Lacey in a timeshare for many years. Starks had 10 carries for 112 yards, a touchdown, a 65-yard touchdown that afternoon. Leading receiver of the day, which shows you the injury issues they had. Was this the year that Jordy got hurt in the preseason? And Cobb eventually got hurt, and they had to bring back James Jones. They were just absolutely decimated at wide receiver. This was the season that ended in Arizona with the second Hail Mary. 
And that was a game where Jared Abraderas and Jeff Janis were their number one and number two wide receivers in a divisional round playoff game. That's how banged up the wide receiver core was. Jeff Janis led the receivers this day. Two catches for 80 yards along of 46. Richard Rodgers had a couple of catches. James Jones a couple of catches. This ended up being a 27-20 lead for the Packers. As Phillip Rivers always did in his career, he got the Chargers down the field late with a chance to get in front or tie the game. This is not the actual broadcast audio. This is from the recap on NFL Network. They were inside the five-yard line. Last play of the game, fourth and goal at the Packer three-yard line. Packers were in throwbacks like they will this weekend. And Phillip Rivers in the flat tried to find Keenan Allen, but Demarius Randall, who had a hell of a day that day, had an interception and two more deflections, jumped this route and knocked it down as it was going toward the end zone. Stopped. So they had to use their final timeout. Oh. And it was knocked away on Beautiful. fourth and goal by Demarius Randall. And Rivers cannot believe it. Demarius was okay there for a while. It fell off sharply after that. That might have been the best individual performance that we saw of Demarius Randall. Packers won that game 27-20, to 6-0 heading into the bye week, and then the vibes just changed dramatically after that. They had those back-to-back games then after going 6-0 and against the Peyton Manning Broncos, who were also unbeaten, and that was on, or that might have been the 325 kickoff on CBS that following, that Sunday in between after the bye week. They got their break speed off there, 29-10. Then they went to Carolina, and that was at a time when Cam Newton was there, and they were a top team in the NFC. They got their break speed off there. Then they lost at home to Detroit. First win at Lambeau Field for the Lions in, what, 20-plus years? This would end up being the year in Detroit where we saw the first Hail Mary to Richard Rodgers, and eventually you get the playoff win in Washington wildcard weekend, the loss at Arizona to Larry Fitzgerald in overtime after they tied it with that haul, that Hail Mary to Janice at the end of that one. Just a weird year where everything was disjointed offensively by the end of the year because of the injuries. That's the first year where we started to feel like there was maybe some acrimony between Rodgers and McCarthy. There were a lot of those Rodgers frustrated looks to the sideline and what the hell are we doing or what the bleep are we doing out there? That was the first time we started to feel that ripple And I think that all starts with the way that 2014 season ended. But I forgot how hot they were to begin that year. That win against the San Diego Chargers got them to 6-0 before they hit the bye week, and then everything kind of fell apart on them by the end of that year. All right, what do we expect this weekend? Not a lot. (laughs) Quay Walker's going to play, it sounds like. I do not know what the Jair Alexander injury status is. Packers are 3-6 and six coming into this game, and the Chargers are what they've been, really, under Staley. They are an underachieving team with a lot of talent. They are 4-5 and five coming into today. The Chargers are Sunday. The Chargers probably need a win more than the Packers do. I guess Packers players and coaches would tell you they still have a shot at the playoffs, and if we win this game, it could turn the season around all that. The Chargers are at the bottom of a congested mess in the AFC playoff picture, and they're coming off of a year where they kind of had their own Packer 2014 situation, losing that game in dramatic fashion at home wildcard weekend to Jacksonville last year. They don't seem to have recovered from that. They get a win, though. You get back to 500, and they give themselves a chance to get back in the playoff conversation in the AFC. When you just look at this matchup, the Chargers are the more talented team. They only have one more win than the Packers do. They've got a plus a quarterback. Herbert is better than Jordan Love. They have a good offensive line, an excellent running back in Austin Eckler, and that is maybe the most frightening matchup of the weekend. <laughs> when you think about the running backs that this Packer defense has been unable to stop this year, 
And now you're going to face off against a potential Pro Bowl running back or an all-pro level running back and a very good offensive line. That seems like a recipe for disaster heading into this weekend. Now, Eckler hasn't been as good as he has been in the past. I'm trying to pull up his stats here. He's a little under four yards per carry, not getting the workload that he is accustomed to, although he is coming off of 19 carries against the Lions this past Sunday. Just given how this Packer team has looked against the run, this feels like it's going to be a day where Eckler can feast a little bit. They do still have Keenan Allen, who was in that game in 2015 as a young player against the Packers. Packers have always seemed to have difficulty defending him. They have another couple talented young wide receivers for the Chargers. I know we've talked about the Packer defense going into last weekend. They were top 10. A lot of that was because they had played bad teams up until that point. They yielded a bit yesterday or last week in the run game, gave up some points, probably stepped outside of the top 10. You're going to face a legitimate offense on Sunday, and I am frightened of what they are going to (laughs) do to this Joe Barry defense. A soft zone defense that's bad against the run feels like it could be a five-alarm fire against the Chargers. That means the Packers are going to have to score points. I would guess, unless Joe Barry pulls a rabbit out of his hat and he puts up a good performance and this defense puts up a solid performance, my guess would be as we sit right now on Friday, the Packers are going to have to score. If they're going to win this game, they would have to score 27 to 30 points. Chargers gave up 41 against a good Lions offense. That was a 41 to 38 barn burner last Sunday. I would think, though, the Packers are going to have to be in that 30-ish point range, and I'm just not sure that they're at a point where they can do that. We have seen improvement the past couple weeks. Is it just going up from there was nowhere to go up from? Maybe. But we have seen improvement from the offensive line blocking from Jordan Love's play in the win against the Rams 20-3 two weeks ago. We saw improvements in Pittsburgh despite the loss. The line protected better. I thought Love made some of his best downfield throws in that game against the Steelers. Maybe he can continue that this weekend against the Chargers. The biggest mismatch to me, though, is that Charger up against this Packer defense. And I don't know that the Packer offense, even as they show improvement, are in a spot where they can put up 30 points. We shall see on Sunday. Packers are three-point underdogs going into the game. I wouldn't touch that. The over-under is 43-and-a-half. That feels right-ish. I may bet the over there. We may add the over to the card. I don't have a ton on my card. I don't love the card on the college football side. I don't love the NFL side of things either. We don't have too many picks to make at the end of this podcast. I guess I didn't even really look at the 43 and a half over under. You need a 24 to 20 final? Yeah. Come on. I think I may add that. We may add the over. That way we root for everybody. That way all those Austin Eckler 30-yard runs that lead to Chargers points are good for us. A little bit of emotional hedging. I may go over on 43 and a half. It is a noon kickoff on Fox. Yeah, the Packers will be wearing the 1950 to 1953 throwbacks. They last wore those in 2021 when they were on their way to a number one seed and had a Hall of Fame quarterback. (laughs) Feels like a long time ago. They will be sporting those on Sunday. Tickets aren't as bad as the last Lambeau Field game. Remember before that Rams game, tickets were going for 24, 25 bucks before kickoff. They're still going in the 65, 70-ish range. That's a little less than face value if you wanted to go and check things out at Lambeau Field this Sunday. Chargers and Packers. Otherwise, I don't think there's much more of a breakdown for this game. Chargers are just better across the board. As we talked about on the Monday podcast, if you lose this game, it's pretty likely you're going to be sitting at 3-9. and nine. I just... I don't see them going into Detroit and getting a win on Thanksgiving Day. I'm not saying it can't happen. I just, it's hard to say that that would happen or could happen. 
And then you've got Mahomes and the Chiefs at Lambeau Field on Sunday night football the following week. I, I Tell me if you see a path to a win there. If they don't win on Sunday against the Chargers, my guess is they are going to be 3-9 and nine entering that Monday night tilt on December 11th in New York against the Giants. Then you do have more winnable games. It's going to be tough for this team. If they lose on Sunday and then you expect them to lose in Detroit and expect them to lose at home against Kansas City, at that point, if they are 3-9, and nine, they're probably sitting top five, maybe even top four picks. And if you are 3-9, and nine, the playoffs are gone. And at that point, you really are not rooting for, but maybe hoping for more losses and getting into the top three, maybe getting into the top two of the NFL draft. The problem is after these next three games – very winnable games. You have that game in New York. The Giants look like they have cashed in the season. They're on their third-string quarterback. That's a winnable game. You would think Carolina on the road. Christmas Eve is a winnable game. The Bears at the end of the year, winnable game. It feels like we may be on a path here, depending on the outcome of this weekend, where you are going to get to that dreaded six or seven win total. You'll be just short of the over-under on season win total for the year, which will be an additional gut punch at the end of the year for those of us that have the over. And then you are going to sit in that 8-9-10 draft pick realm. If they do fall to 3-9, and nine, at that point, you almost would prefer them to lose out. But there's a whole host of winnable games after that. We'll see what happens this weekend. Again, noon kickoff on Sunday at Lambeau Field. We'll talk real quick about the Badgers. I don't know how much of a deep dive we have to do here. I, A, cannot believe this game is still on primetime, or they chose it for primetime a week ago or two weeks ago. I suppose you still consider the Badgers have a decent fan base, at least to watch the game. Nebraska, despite how bad they've been in recent years, they maybe are coming back to life a little bit under Matt Rule. They have a huge fan base. This has to be regional, right? It's on NBC, but there have to be other games other people can watch across the country, or is everybody that has NBC going to have to watch this game on Saturday night? Well, I guess you don't have to do it. Badgers are somehow favored. We've talked for weeks and weeks and weeks that they are at a point or we are at a point with the Badgers where they are not trustworthy in any spread situation, whether it's for them or against them, especially after what we saw against Indiana and Northwestern. There isn't a prayer I would put any money on the Badgers minus five. The only thing that I could think of where I might put some money on this game is if I did a money line bet. It was a call-out at the end of the Northwestern game. Both Tanner Mordecai and Hunter Waller, essentially without naming names. You don't name, you can't name names. She named names. Without naming names, they both basically said there are people in this locker room, players in the locker room. Remember Hunter Waller specifically when asked, is it the players or the coaches said, it's the players. They both specifically said there are guys in here that we need to find out if they give a bleep. And Hunter Waller took it a step further and basically said there are players that right now don't give a bleep and don't give a bleep about the program and the history and the rivalries. And he said by the end of that five-minute clip or six-minute clip, essentially, that some of those guys have to go, that they have to clear out the locker room of those players that are not interested in giving it the full go or are not fully bought into Fickle and Longo and Mike Tressel. Maybe after getting called out by your teammates in the press, all of the players will be locked in trying to get a win. The Badgers need a win in their final two games to become bowl eligible. I know we talked about it on Monday. I cannot believe we're saying that sentence. In year one of Luke Fickle, with all of the buildup and the enthusiasm and the positivity heading into this year, there was not a chance in hell I thought we'd be recording a podcast on November 17th saying we need a win in our final two weeks to be bowl eligible. And if you don't win this weekend... It is hard to fathom, even though the Gophers have been bad, it's hard to fathom then the final game of the year if the players that aren't checked in now don't respond and check in this Saturday and lose another home game on Senior Day. 
I don't envision a world where they would then go on the road the final game of the year with Cancun calling. I know it's not that's not a college football thing. That's an NBA. One, two, three, Cancun. With Cancun calling in the final game of the year, I don't see them going in there and getting a win against Minnesota in that rivalry game. This is a must win if you want to play in a bowl game. And for the Badger program, not just continuing with the bowl streak and making sure you're bowl eligible, that also gives you extra practice. Coaches at the college level will tell you, even if you're 6-6 six and six or 7-5 and five and fans are rolling their eyes at the whatever, pipefitter.com bowl or whatever you end up going to, Papa Murphy's special sauce bowl, wherever you end up, some fan base will say, oh, whatever, December 27th game at 9 p.m. But what that gives the coaches is an extra week of practice. If this team is not in a bowl, at the end of the Minnesota game, the players and the coaches go their separate ways, and they don't see them each other again until spring. This could be, if you're bowl eligible, valuable for a young team, valuable extra practice time, an extra week of practice, and an extra game to get some experience in the system. That's huge value for this coaching staff with where this program is right now. They need as much practice time and as much game experience as they can get. They are five-point favorites heading into the weekend against Nebraska. It'll be a 6.30 kickoff on NBC for Badger football. We have Badger basketball tonight, right? Boy, that was a weird situation, too, with Greg Gard. After the loss to Providence earlier this week, they looked really bad in that game. A long drought, which is a Badger tradition. They just got pushed around, bullied on the road to Providence. Providence is not a pushover. We're not talking about whoever they're playing tonight. Tonight they play Badger Hoops at 6 o'clock. They are playing Robert Morris, the Colonials. Providence isn't that. And you're at their place. Road games in college football and especially college basketball are always difficult. They just got pushed around and bullied hard in that game. And Greg Gard was visibly upset and frustrated at the end of that game. They lost 72-59. to He had some weird comments after that game, too, especially as it related to Connor Asijan. Asijan, who was a standout as a freshman, which is rare in the Badger program, he averaged double-digit points last year, was a very good shooter, arguably the best shooter on the team. Coming back for his sophomore year, he had back injury issues in the offseason, he only played five minutes against Ryder. He only played six minutes in the second game of the year, and he only played four minutes in the game on Tuesday at Providence. And a reporter asked Craig Gard, is that because of his back injury? Is his back injury acting up, and that's why he is on a low-minute total right now? And Greg Gard said, I don't know. You'd have to ask Connor Asijan about that. Don't love that. <laughs> don't love that response. That is essentially saying it is not the back injury or Greg Gard is saying that maybe Connor Asijan is massaging that back injury a little bit so that he doesn't have to play in some of these games. I don't know. That was a weird response from Greg Gard. Greg Gard also called out by name Tyler Wall and Stephen Crowell for not being physical, not finishing in the lane. There was a lot of stuff that got thrown out in a post game after the third game. Granted, they looked terrible, it's on the road against a power power conference team in Providence that has been tournament ready or a tournament team for many, many years. Still, after the third game, that felt like a lot of venting for Greg Gard after game three. Don't love it. Badger football program and Badger basketball program. Chris McIntosh getting a lot of two-hour nights of sleep, I think, recently. At least the hockey programs are good. It's a hockey school. Volleyball has been good, even though they lost to Penn State. Hockey, men's hockey, they've turned that whole thing around. They're number one in the country. Women's hockey, number one in the country. At least we got that going for us. I just thought some very peculiar comments from Greg Gard, given that we haven't heard anything like that from him 
in previous years, and we're only three games into the year. Odd. They are taking on Robert Morris tonight, a 6 o'clock tip time at the Kohl's Center. And then where is number four Marquette? They got a big, big win at number 23, Illinois. A good early season resume-building win. They won that one by seven, led by Kolick. They start, oh, they're the Maui Invitational. The Maui Invitational is one of the top-tier Feast Week tournaments. Feast Week's so good, guys. This is a gambler's paradise. There are two marquee moments for college basketball. Obviously, March Madness. But this week, Thanksgiving week, when all of these tournaments are happening, basketball is basically on from 9 a.m. until midnight or 1 a.m. every single day starting on Monday. I can't wait to lose a lot of money. And they start with UCLA in the Maui Invitational at 10.30 p.m. on Monday. Guess I won't be watching that game. <laughs> but if they win that, I will be following it further. Number four team in the country, Marquette Golden Eagles. Yeah, they have off until Monday. Badgers at the Cole Center tonight. What else are we talking about? Oh, we wrap up on the Bucks. Bucks in Toronto on Wednesday. Two weeks ago Wednesday, they went to Toronto, got absolutely steamrolled, demolished, 130-110 to 110 or 130-109. to 109. They were never in the game. They were down double digits early, never in that game. After that game, remember we said on the Friday podcast of the week that the that Bucks Twitter was in complete five-alarm meltdown mode. That was the first time where I started to read already, and that was only, what, five games into the year, four games into the year, that some fans felt like Adrian Griffin was not the guy. <laughs> so early in the year, even though they looked like utter trash in that game, I remember chuckling and thinking, my God, we're doing this already. And as they've continued to play disjointed or uneven, there has been more and more of that conversation. And it felt like, even with a win against the Bulls on Monday by nine points, it felt like that conversation was continuing to a pretty high degree for some high-profile Packer bloggers and podcasters or Packer, Bucks Packer, Bucks podcasters and bloggers. I smell toast. <laughs> Just had a seizure on the podcast. Bucks podcasters and bloggers all week were throwing that out there that they thought that maybe Adrian Griffin is not the guy. And if this is a championship caliber team and you know that he's not the guy, why wait? We talked about it on the podcast on Friday. You've got to give him 50 or 60 games. I know that takes you into February or March. You've got to give him some time. We cannot be making these calls 10 games into the year. It just felt like the momentum was gaining in that conversation all week. They go to Toronto on Wednesday. No Giannis, load management, calf strain. Calf strain seems to be the new load management injury designation. We had Dane with a calf strain. He sat on a couple games. Giannis had a calf strain on Wednesday. That seems to be the go-to right now for NBA teams. No Giannis in an environment against a team they have not had a lot of success against up to and including two weeks ago from Wednesday. They go in there and they lead from basically minute one. They lead by double digits and they steamroll the Raptors 128 to 112. It was a calming win, I thought. Dame out there without Giannis, although you did see that conversation on Twitter. Bucks Twitter just can't be happy. <laughs> we just can't be happy. You go to Toronto, you win handily. Raptors were at full strength. Bucks didn't have Giannis. Instead of celebrating that, do you know what some of the conversation was on Wednesday? Well, it's, isn't it a little concerning how good Dame looks when Giannis is not playing? And how good Giannis looks when Dame is not playing? <laughs> good Lord. Just be happy for a minute. They are going to be fine. Giannis and Dame are going to figure it out. Yes, of course, Dame is going to be more comfortable in a game this early into their careers together or this early into this stint together. Of course, Dame is going to be more comfortable out there without Giannis. That's what he's used to. He spent 11 years in Portland as the guy without really having a running mate outside of the fellow guard, C.J. McCollum, not a forward or a center, a guard. He was always the guy. That's a role he has played to critical acclaim. 
if this were 60 games into the year and Giannis got a load management game and Dame looked worlds better than he normally does, then there could be reason for concern. They've only played seven games together. Dame sat out two, almost knocked over my water. Dame sat out two, Giannis sat out one, they played 11 games. So they've only played eight games together. Of course Dave is going to look more comfortable out there without Giannis. They are going to figure it out. They're going to figure out the two-man game. They're going to figure out the pick and roll. And when that happens, this team is going to win 12 of their next 13 games. It's going to take time. Dame had 37 points, 13 assists. Excellent passing on Wednesday. We had the injury news about Jay Crowder, which I talked about on the B93 Morning Show. That could actually be helpful for this team. He's out eight weeks with a groin injury. Jay was playing really well. I don't know what Budenholzer was doing with Jay at the end of last year and not playing him in the playoffs. He has been superb off the bench for this team. So on the surface, you think that injury is going to hurt, losing a guy like that for eight weeks. But to me, that means Marjan's going to get more minutes. That means Andre Jackson Jr., who started on Wednesday, the rookie from UConn, he's going to get more minutes. They need Marjan and Ajax to be significant players off the bench for this team by the time we get to spring. Yes, Trading Drew and getting Dame has led to a dip off defensively. We knew that was going to be the case going in. But Marjan has shown promise as a wing defender. Andre Jackson Jr., the whole reason they drafted him was because of his hustle, his energy, and his talent as a wing defender. He can guard guards. He can guard forwards. But you have to get them game experience. Marjan's finally seeing an uptick in minutes. He saw some in his rookie year, and then Bud kind of lost faith in him and then that seemed to really shake Marjan's confidence and we didn't really see him much by the end of the year he looks to have taken a half step to a step forward already this year now he rolled his ankle on Wednesday hopefully he'll be okay I was just talking on the air on Wednesday morning about how this might be a good thing and then two quarters into Marjan seeing more minutes rolls his ankle hopefully he'll be back on the floor soon I think this is a good thing, though. I think this means you're going to see Ajax for 15 to 20 minutes a game. You're going to see Marjan when he's in there, 15, 20, maybe some nights, 25 minutes. And in November and December and January in the NBA, that is the time, while all of the other kinks are being ironed out, that is the time to get these young guys important playing time in regular season games because you are going to need them. It's with the way this team lines up defensively, unless you make a trade, I know Alex Caruso is a name who is a premier wing defender for Chicago and the Bulls are going nowhere. Could you maybe get him for something? I don't know how you'd get him without giving up Connaughton or Bobby Portis. I don't mind giving up Connaughton in a pick. As much as Pat did for that title team, I don't mind trading him. I don't think you can trade Bobby and gain anything. You'd be trading a lot of offense, bench offense for defense there. If you don't go and get a player like that, they are going to need Andre Jackson Jr. and Marjan Bochamp in critical games in March and April and into the playoffs to defend elite offensive players in the playoffs. They need these minutes. They need to grow. They need to mature. They need to gain confidence in the system. These could be big minutes for the next couple months with Jay out. This could actually be a good thing. And Jay, you don't worry about. He's a veteran. By the time he gets back in January, they'll ramp him up. He should be able to get back on the road fairly seamlessly. These minutes could be and should be very good for the young wing defenders that the Bucks desperately need to grow into usable pieces by the time we get to spring. They get that victory on Wednesday. Bobby was good. Seven blocks for Brooke. The defense overall looked good. The defense was near last in the league in the first couple weeks of the year. Now they've gotten inside the top 20. They're showing some improvement as the season has gone forward. Who else had a big game? Oh, Malik Beasley. He was unconscious on Wednesday. 11 of 14 from the field. 8 of 11 from beyond the arc. 30 points. Second best in his career. All with Giannis out. And Thanasis, I thought, played some reasonable minutes on Wednesday with how... 
deep this team or the lack of depth this team has with the injuries. Once Marjan went down, Thanasis got some significant minutes, and he played well, brought the hustle, got a couple rebounds, had a bucket inside. Bucks are 7-4, and four, and the in-season tournament pool play continues tonight. Are you ready? Bucks are 1-0 and oh in pool play currently. They are in Charlotte. This should be a fairly easy, winnable game. I believe the NBA is telling teams do not do load management in games for the in-season tournament. They are desperately trying to build this thing up and get fans excited for it. For that reason, I expect that we will see Giannis and Dame on the floor tonight as the Bucks try to go to 2-0 and in pool play, a 6 o'clock tip time in Charlotte tonight. That'll do it for us here. Oh, no, we got to make some picks. Hold on. Hold on. There aren't many because I don't like the card. Let's make some picks. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. Never tell me the odds. If someone gives you 10,000 to 1 on anything, you take it. That's a cool G, Daddy. Oh, now you got to let it ride. All right. We had a great week. Not a good week. A great week last week. 5-0-1 with six picks. We are 31-23-2, everybody. We are up eight units on the year. I could just take a knee and stop doing this, and then we'd say we finished over 500, but I will not do that. I will slowly but surely whittle my way back down to 500. That's the gambling way. I do not love a lot of the slate for college football or the NFL. It's hard to get a read on some of these NFL games. We finally thought we had a good Thursday night game in the NFL, and then Joe Burrow hurt his wrist, and he couldn't finish the game. Looks like he's going to be out for a long time as the Ravens got a pretty easy win then, ultimately, against Cincinnati. On the college football side, I like two. I will take number 17 Arizona at home, minus one in a basically pick em game against number 22 Utah. Utah's been a good story. That schedule is rigorous. They are coming off of a tough loss at number five Washington. They're still on the road. Arizona has been ascending as the year has gone on. I like him at home, minus one at home against Utah. I'm going to take Georgia. Georgia at the beginning of the year seemed to be off to a very sluggish start to the point where people were questioning whether or not, oh, should they be in the college football playoff conversation? Of course they should be. They haven't lost a game in two years. They are starting to look like Georgia. They are at number 18, Tennessee. Not an easy place to play, but with the way Georgia is playing, I think they're going to win this game handily. They are minus 10 on the road. My feeling is they're going to win this by two touchdowns plus. Georgia minus 10 at Tennessee. Then in the NFL, you know what? I am going to add the Packer over. Packers and Chargers over 43 and a half. Another over I'm taking is Cardinals-Texans. Did I think at any point this year I'd be betting on a Cardinals-Texans game? No, I did not. However, Kyler Murray is back for the Cardinals, and C.J. Stroud is morphing into not only a rookie of the year, but an MVP candidate in front of our very eyes. Both of these teams are putting up points, and the over-under is at 47.5. That's a little high. I'm taking it, though. Over on 47.5 for the Cardinals and Texans. I am going to do a money line parlay on Sunday. All three of these teams are heavy favorites. And again, just to reset, I think we did one of these last year. Money line means you're just betting on a team to win. You're not betting on them to cover a spread, which means if you are betting on the favorite, a heavy favorite to win, you have to bet a lot to win a little. But if you feel like there's no chance this team loses and you have to bet $100 to win 10 if you feel like there's no world they're going to lose, you look at it and say that's a free $10. That's also gambler brain. Instead of the risk of 100 you look at it as $10 on the sidewalk. I'm going to pick this up and move on. If you stack some of these together, and this is a met that a lot of gamblers use, if you stack two or three of these heavy favorites together in a parlay, you can sometimes whittle that down to a one-to-one payout. 
And again, if you feel like it's very likely they're all just going to win, that's something you look at week to week. So I am going to take the Dolphins, Cowboys, and Niners all to win. Dolphins are 12-point favorites. Cowboys are 10-point favorites in Carolina. And the Niners are 11-point favorites at home against Tampa. Dolphins take on the Raiders. Just to win. They're all double-digit favorites, but just to win. And that gets the line down to minus 175. So you bet 100 and you win 75-ish dollars. That's about all that works out. We'll do that one, too. Arizona minus one at home against Utah in college. Georgia minus 10 at Tennessee. Then the Cardinals, Texans over 47 and a half. Packers, Chargers over at 43 and a half. And a three-team money line parlay. Dolphins, Cowboys, and Niners all just to win at minus 175. That'll do it for us here on your Friday. We'll get back after on Monday, Thanksgiving week, feast week, recapping maybe a Packer win. Doesn't feel super likely. Maybe a Badger win. Doesn't feel super likely. Bucks win, though. We could be talking about that on Monday. We'll break all that down, and we'll be getting set right away for Packers and Lions in Detroit on Thanksgiving Day. Have a happy, safe weekend. We'll chat with you then.